Well, good morning. That was great. Um, my name is Scott Boyd. I'm one of the elders, one of your elders here uh, at Annapolis CP. The passage we're going to read from this morning is uh, Paul's book to the Church of Rome, chapter 3, uh, verses 21 to 28. You can find it in the Bible in front of you, or they're going to put it up here on the screen. Reading along with me. Uh, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Thanks, Scott. So today's message uh, is, is part of our summer series of messages where we are, are attempting to look at God for, to see what he is like, um, to see some of the things that, that he has done who he is, that we might enter into more deeply our relationship with him. We've seen, uh, over the last few weeks, we've seen that he's the giver of life. He's the giver of physical life. He's also the giver of what we might call abundant life or, or eternal life. And then last week, we saw that he is the God who is holy. Today, what we, we come to is this idea or, or fact that God is righteous. Now, I'm not sure what you think of the idea of righteousness, uh, for many people in our culture, I think righteousness can be a negative idea. Uh, it, it brings to mind uh, the idea that, that we are being evaluated or we're being judged. Or we may be associated with people who are self-righteous, which I think we can all agree is not very attractive. So, so for some of us, the idea of righteousness may not be a real positive thing. Um, but if we want to understand who God is then we can't ignore righteousness. Because the scriptures make it very clear that God is righteous. And so, so I want to, what I want to try to do is help us to take a look at, at what righteousness is, um, why we should want it, why we should desire it, maybe even why we need it, and then thirdly, how we can get it, how we can obtain righteousness ourselves. And so if you, we'll, we'll start with obviously the first point, which is what is righteousness? If you, if you saw the quotes in the reflection at the beginning of your worship guide, those, those are put there to kind of help, help you frame your mind as, as we come to worship each week. Uh, but you'll, you'll see there that Tim Keller defines righteousness as a validating performance record that opens doors. A validating performance record that opens doors. Now, I personally think that righteousness is more than this. So I, I want us to go deeper than this. But at the same time, I don't think that he's wrong. I don't disagree 
with, with what, what he says here. I think that what Keller is saying can help us. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to go a little deeper, try to unpack a little bit more of what righteousness is, and then, and then I'll try to tell you why I think Keller's definition can be helpful to us. The root word of righteousness, I know this sounds like, gonna sound like an English class here, but, but the root word of righteousness is right. Someone who is righteous is someone who does what is right. That doesn't sound very complicated so far. But what does complicate it a little bit is that in the Greek language, the word righteous and the word justice are essentially the same word. It's, it's being translated into English differently. It comes into our English language as either righteous or righteousness or just or justice, depending on the part of speech that's being used. But it's the same word. So someone who is righteous is not, not only someone who does what is right, but someone who is righteous is also someone who is just. So what this means is that righteousness is not just some arbitrary or subjective standard. It doesn't just mean whatever we might decide that we want it to mean. The definition of right and just cannot be defined by us because it has a definition on its own. Let me give you an example. When, when we talk about social justice, I, w- I would hope that we would agree that racism is wrong. But it's not wrong because 51% of us say it's wrong. It's wrong because outside of us, there is an objective, permanent standard that says that treating other mistreating other human beings because of their of their ethnicity or their color is wrong another example would be human trafficking i would i would hope that we could agree that human trafficking is wrong but if but if there are other people that come along at another time in another place that decide that it's not wrong they would be wrong. Because justice and rightness are fixed truths that do not change. So what does it mean that God is righteous? Well, it means that God always does what is right. It means that He always does what is just. And if you remember from last week, when we talked about holiness, we, we talked about how God's holiness is, is an attribute that kind of lays over his other attributes. Holiness means that God is infinitely above, infinitely beyond. He's infinitely set apart other, for, other than us. So what that means is that when you take his holiness and you apply it to other attributes like his power, then we don't just say that God has power. We say that his power is greater than any other power because it's a holy power. Or we say that he's, we don't just say he, he's wise. We say that his wisdom is, is infinitely above all other wisdom. Well, guess what? God is not only righteous, but his righteousness and his justice are infinitely above any other righteousness or justice that you and I could think of. In fact, 
I would suggest that all other righteousness and all other justice derives its rightness and justness from God's righteousness. That his righteousness is the starting place for all righteousness and justice. He is the righteous, the righteous one. In fact, if, if God were to ever act in an unrighteous way or act in an unjust way, then he would cease to be worthy of being God. So here's, here's where I think this, this should make a difference for us. Kind of a, kind of a midway application here. I think that, that this truth of God's righteousness and his justice should help us to trust and believe that God is good. For some people, the thought that, that a God could be all powerful and sovereign over all things is a very frightening thought. The reason that I, that I think many people feel that way is because we have a saying here in the world. We say that power corrupts. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. Right? And so if we take that principle and we, and we try to extend that to God, we think, well, well, if God is powerful, if God is sovereign, if God is over all things, and power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely, well, then we have much to be afraid of. But that statement is not true of God because God is good. Another area where, where I think God's righteousness should help us is in trusting his providence. In other words, trusting the way that God is working out his, his good and perfect will in our lives and in our world. When we see things in the world or in our lives that are not going the way that we think is right, we can remind ourselves that God is righteous. That what God does is right. That what God does is just. And while he may allow wrong things to take place, while he may allow injustices for a season, he will never allow sin and what is wrong and what is unjust to endure. I think that's what, what Paul is saying in verse 25. It's what he's getting at. He's touching on this truth in verse 25 when he says, whatever he said beforehand, he said, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Paul is acknowledging that there have been times when God has allowed sin to stand. There are times when God has allowed injustice to stand. But don't think for a minute that just because you see sin and injustice standing for a season, don't think for a minute that God is going to let that be. It may not be a guarantee that all injustices are going to be ended in, in our lifetime or in, in this world, but he is righteous and he is just. And he will ultimately bring an end to all wrongs and all injustices because he is the righteous and just God. He is good. We can, we can trust that he is good, even in his power, and we can trust that he is good as he works things together according to his plan, even in our lives. Okay, so that's, that's what righteousness is. But there's another implication for us, or there are some other implications for us, and that brings us to the second point. 
And that is, why should we desire this righteousness? Or actually, why do we need righteousness? Because God is righteous and just, God cannot tolerate, he cannot settle for unrighteousness. He cannot accept unrighteousness. What this means is that he must require righteousness of us. Now, this is where I think we we start to get our negative connotations of righteousness because it's at this point that we start talking about how we have to live up to a standard, right? If God cannot accept unrighteousness because of his righteousness, then he must he must demand righteousness from us. And so that sets the stage for we're going to be evaluated. We're going to be judged against a perfect standard. And so we begin to associate righteousness with judgment. And that's not wrong. This is why Keller defines righteousness the way he does. When he says, it is a validating performance record that opens doors. Living up to a standard such that we are found acceptable and therefore we are welcomed in. That's what he's saying. It's why most religious people are religious, if you think about it. Because religion is human beings trying to make themselves presentable to God through their their religious and moral performance. Before I try to help you and try to tell you that it's not really as bad as it sounds, um, I'm going to make it a little worse. Because in verse 23, Paul says that no matter your intentions, no matter your religiosity, no matter your effort, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Keller goes on to say that, that it's, it's not, that it's even broader than this. Because right now we're just talking about God's standard, right? And some, some of you, some of us may say, well, I'm not even sure I believe in God. I'm not even sure that I believe in a righteous God or a standard by which I, I will be measured. Well, Keller suggests that it goes, it goes beyond, it's not only that we fall short of God's standard, we fall short of our own standard. Think about this. How many of us would say, that we could live a better life. I know I could. My guess is that you could too. Have you lived as righteously as you could have? I would say none of us have. But not only that, what about, what about the standard by which you get frustrated with other people? Now, you're not going to tell me you don't get frustrated with other people, are you? We all get frustrated with other people. And the reason that we get frustrated with other people is because you and I have a standard of righteousness by which we judge others. That's not God's standard. That's your standard. It's my standard. So here's the question. Let's take that standard. Evaluate yourself against that standard. Have you always lived up to your own standard? Have you always lived up to the standard by which you get angry and frustrated with other people? Of course you haven't. None of us have. So all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and we have even fallen short of our own glory. 
And we haven't even mentioned how we fall short of the standards of other people, which is why we write resumes and CVs. It's why we get test anxiety. It's why we get nervous whenever we get ready to ask somebody out on a date or when we go on a job interview, because we know that there's a very good likelihood that we are going to fall short of other people's standards. We long to be in possession of a performance record that will be found worthy, that will open doors so that we might be welcomed in. That's why we need it. Well, how do we get it? How do we obtain this kind of righteousness? Well, in verse 21, Paul says, Now, apart from exhausting ourselves, trying to live up to an impossible standard, such a record is now available to us from God. That's not verbatim. This is what he says verbatim. A righteousness from God now, apart from the law, has been revealed. This righteousness has been given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, such that those who trust in Christ are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Do you hear that word justified? Remember how I said that righteousness and justification are the same word? They're just translated differently into our language. Well, here's why they both exist. Righteousness or righteous is the English translation of the word when it's used as a noun or an adjective. So we say, God is righteous. That's an adjective. It's describing God. Or, or if we said, God possesses righteousness. It's a noun. It's a thing that God possesses. Justification and justify are, are the way we translate the same word when it's used as a verb or to refer, to refer to the process of the verb. So we say, he was just, he has justified us freely by his grace. That's, that's a verb. That's an action. So to be righteous is to have a performance record that is acceptable and by which we are welcomed in. Let me say it this way. To be justified is to be righteousnessified. Obviously, we don't talk that way. That's why we translate it justified. Now you understand why, why the translation is so cumbersome. But that's the point. In order to understand what Paul is saying here, we need to understand an idea that is often referred to by theologians as imputation imputation. Not amputation. We're not taking something off. It's imputation. It's actually putting something on. Imputation means to be covered, to be clothed, to be wrapped up in something. I think adoption is is a wonderful picture of imputation. When When a child is adopted, the name of the adopting family is imputed to the child. Such that regardless of where the boy or girl came from, regardless of what their background is or any experience that they've had, they are now clothed with the family name and they are welcomed into the family as a full-fledged son or daughter. It is as if that, that boy or girl 
was actually born of the mother's womb. That's what's imputed. That's what conveys with the name when a child is adopted. The imputation that Paul is talking about is is actually something it's something that comes through faith in Jesus Christ and it's actually a double imputation. If you want to to do a little word play, you can say as as Christians we are double imputees. The first imputation is our sins being placed on Jesus Christ. Our sins being conveyed to Jesus such that when he died, he was paying the deficit. He was paying for the fact that that we have fallen short of God's righteous standard. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that he who had no sin became sin for us. Well, how did he become sin for us? He didn't say, hey guys, I want to do something for you. Because, and, and, and I, and I'm gonna, because I have no sin, I need to become sin, and so I'm gonna start sinning for you. That's not what he did. He didn't become a sinner. He took our sins upon himself. He was covered in our sin. He was clothed in our sin. And then he received the just condemnation for sin himself in our place. This is what is being referred to when we talk about our sins being forgiven. It's this first imputation. But this is only half of the imputation. It's only the first part. The other imputation is the righteous record of Jesus who had no sin, who who fully satisfied the requirements of God's requirements, God's righteous standard. It's his, his record being given to us, just like the name was given to the adopted child, such that we now have the worthiness of Jesus. So it's a double imputation. You see, you see that, that our sin went on him and he endured the cross for us. And then his acceptable performance record of fully fulfilling God's standard has now been imputed to us conveyed to us so that we stand before God worthy, acceptable. What I hope you'll see here is that forgiveness by itself is good. But forgiveness only lets you get out. It's like prison. You know, if you're in prison and someone says, hey, you know what, your crime's been paid for, you've been been forgiven, you're free to go. Okay, well, that's good. If you're a prisoner, being free to go is a good thing. Where are you going to go? I don't know. You'll have to figure that out yourself. You may be out on the street. Is it better than being in jail? Yeah. But it may not be a great life. Forgiveness and justification are different. They're connected. Forgiveness is part of justification, but justification is bigger. Because justification doesn't just say, you're forgiven, you're free to go. Justification says, you're worthy. Come in. You are welcomed in because you are acceptable. 
Justification clothes you in the righteous record of Christ. It opens the door so that you are welcomed in, into God's love, into God's acceptance, and into his family. The last point has to do with boasting. And I think, I think this is where, where we, we can recognize how unappealing that is. Remember how we talked about how, well, you know, self-righteousness is not very attractive. Because it tends to lead to arrogance. I think God understands that measuring up to a standard touches directly on the nerve of our ego. Because it does. And here's how it works. If you are seeking to present yourself righteous, if you're trying to show yourself righteous by validating yourself, producing a performance record that is worthy, if that's your approach, and you are doing, you think you're doing particularly well, you know what that's going to produce in you? Arrogance. It's going to produce in you that, that sense of, of haughtiness where you, you have this boasting quality about you and you look down judgmentally on other people that you don't think are doing as well as you are. Look at me. Wouldn't you like to be where I am? Only if you were half as good as I am. That's that arrogance. That's that, that haughtiness that comes with boasting that we all recognize is really unattractive. But if you're trying to produce a righteousness of your own, and you, and you think you're doing fairly well, that's what, it'll, that's what it'll do to you. On the other hand, if you're, if you're seeking to produce a record of righteousness on your own through your performance record that is worthy, but you don't think you're doing very well, you know what that will do to you? It will exhaust you. It will lead to hopeless, hopelessness, endless discouragement, and feeling defeated. Neither of these are good. They're not good options. But that's what that's what this approach to presenting yourself righteous leads to. And, and the reality is it doesn't produce one or the other. Typically, it produces a life that is a roller coaster ride of both. Or, or a violent elevator ride along the shaft of arrogance and self-loathing. Over and over again. It's exhausting. The righteousness of God, apart from the law, and comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, is the antidote to both of these. It's the solution to both of them. It eliminates boasting altogether. Where is boasting? Paul says it is excluded. There's no place for it. There's no need for it. And it not only makes makes us free to go out, but it welcomes us in. It bids us to come in and be received in the open arms of the righteous God who loves us. Let us run to those arms. Would you pray with me? Father, we are so grateful that you are the righteous God. You are righteous and you are just. And you are not just righteous and just because you are adhering to 
to some standard outside of yourself, but true understanding of righteous, true justice and righteousness derives from you because you are the righteous one. Lord, may, may this truth help us to trust that you are good. Help us also to trust in what you are doing in our lives and in the world. We, we see seasons, we see occasions where sin seems to stand. The wicked seem to prosper. Injustice seems to be prevailing. But Lord, you are righteous and you are just. And you will not let those things stand permanently. Lord, we would love to see all wrongs made right in the here and now. We would love to see all injustices brought to justice in the here and now. We see it in your word. The psalmist cries out for this regularly. But Lord, regardless of what we see, you are righteous. Help us to to trust that, that your righteousness and your justice will ultimately prevail and we can have great confidence in you. Lord, help us also to see our need of righteousness and to see how exhausting our pursuit of it can be, but that now a righteousness that is apart from the law has been revealed, a righteousness from you that is found in Jesus. He has taken our sin and he has given us his righteous record by which we might be welcomed into your love and into your family. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.